So, it's the fourth Sunday of Advent. All four candles are lit. So, are you ready for Christmas? Ooh. Are you ready? It's a hard question to answer in the affirmative. I mean, just about Christmas, there's sort of the Martha Stewart side of Christmas, right? The tree, the wreath, the presents, the bows, the food, the postcards, all that stuff. You know, to be ready is to sort of have everything just so. It suggests a kind of perfect Christmas. Ah, oh, the tree is great, right? But there's also the spiritual question. Are you ready? Are you ready for the coming of Jesus? Are you ready for God to come into the world for the incarnation? And that has its own kind of perfection, right? I mean, as we think about ourselves or we think about the world, you know, are we ready for Christmas? Oh, my gosh. I mean, let's face it, it's been another punishing week of news, right? I mean, we've just gone through the whole impeachment vote, the division in our country on full display, the rhetoric as heated and hyperbolic as ever. You know, we had news this week that the war in Afghanistan has been a colossal waste of time and we've known it all along. Lives and money lost. And I could go on and on and on. I don't think I need to convince you that the world's a mess. But also when we think about ourselves personally, are we ready for Christmas personally? We're never really the person we're hoping to be, right? Just like that war in Afghanistan, the person we want to be is just around the corner, right? It's just about there, you know, when we'll be the person we're meant to be. We'll be good. We'll be together. We'll have it all just so. And then I'll be ready for God to come into my life, into my heart. I'll be prepared. And so it's hard to feel ready. And so maybe it's good that we read the Matthean version of the Nativity this morning. This is sort of the minority report of Christmas. <laughs> this is not the Christmas story we all know and love, right? This is not the angel. The angel doesn't come to Mary, comes to Joseph. I mean, there's no shepherds, there's no stable, there's no census. I mean, the Christmas story we know and love is sort of a version of Luke and Matthew squished together. And the Matthew part that we like is the part where the astrologers or the kings come along, pay homage to the child, bringing the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. Well, Matthew's story has a beginning, and it's considerably different, right? I mean, the locust of the action is not Mary, it's Joseph. The angel comes to him, and it's up to him to decide what to do. And it, maybe it's appropriate. I mean, we are sort of in this time where it's choose your own reality. You know, which Christmas story do you like best? You know, you want the Matthew or the Luke? But how can this be? How can these stories be so different? I mean, there's not much of a Venn diagram overlap between the two of them. And I think the first thing you have to come to grips with is that the nativity stories that we have, both in Luke and in Matthew... They're not historical accounts of the birth of Jesus. 
It's not a news story of how it went down. These are theological descriptions of who Jesus is. Okay? And it's about how God comes into the world. And Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that came before and the transformation of everything that comes afterwards. So the point of the nativity narrative is to show us sort of the whole sweep of salvation history. It's all there. So really, for Matthew, it actually begins in the text just before what we read this morning, which is the lineage of Jesus. Now, the lineages in the Bible are sort of like the final exam for lectors, right? This is the part where there's this long list of names that nobody can pronounce. Nobody knows what's being said. It goes on and on and on. There are actually three columns of 14 generations in the lineage of Jesus. It starts with Abraham, you know, our ancestor in faith, which makes sense, and continues down through Isaac and Jacob. On down, you have the whole list there. And then, then we have the kings, and then we have 14 generations of people we don't even know. But the people in the list are kind of a mixed bag. It's not exactly who we might think. I mean, for instance, I mean, I guess we might think Abraham makes sense, but then we have Isaac and Jacob, and if we remember, Jacob is the one who tricks his father into getting the blessing and bilking Esau out of his birthright, right? And then the next person in line is Judah, which is a little bit of a surprise, too, because remember, it's Joseph who is the one who interprets dreams. He's sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. And when the famine comes, he's the one able to provide for the family. Now, Jesus' lineage just goes through Judah, one of the brothers that sold him into slavery. And then in the next generation, we have our first woman, Tamar. There are actually five women in the list. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Now, the story with um, uh, Tamar is a little tricky. I mean, she's married to Judah's son, and he dies. And then she marries the second son, and he dies. And then Judah refuses to give, him, give her another son. And so she disguises herself and seduces Judah and becomes pregnant. And then it's revealed that actually Judah is the father of her child. <laughs> it's kind of one of those family stories you might not want to bring up. Rahab is the prostitute in Jericho who helps the Israelite spies escape so that, they can have, so that they can facilitate the fall of Jericho. It's a kind of a mixed list, but it gets even worse. As we get down to Jesse, we have David, King David. I don't know if any of you came to my King David class. We kind of talked about him. He's certainly of mixed morals, <laughs> to say the very least. And Frankly, in this list of kings of Israel, he's probably the high point. <laughs> the rest of the kings, um, well, let's just say they're kind of a litany of corruption, incompetence, stupidity, murder, adultery, you name it, it's all there. They managed to fritter away the kingdom by the time of the Babylonian captivity. And then we have 14 generations of people we don't know. 
So we have patriarchs, kings, and regular people until we come down to and Joseph, who was the husband of Mary. So that brings us to this part of the story where we had this morning. And sort of the, the locus of the action is that Mary is with child out of wedlock. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up Roman Catholic. And when I grew up, Mary was the ever-Virgin Mary. The ever-Virgin Mary. That was her name. And we had like the Immaculate Conception. So not only was she the ever-Virgin Mary, she was conceived without sin. This incredibly pure vessel. And it was always emphasized how pure she was because she was the mother of Jesus. And yet, I've got to wonder a little bit, like, what's the hang-up here? Considering where we've come from, if we think about all the people who've come before, what's the big deal that Jesus should be conceived of out of wedlock? I mean, the stuff that came before is far more challenging. And yet, this seems to be the point is that God is able to pour grace upon all this human action and make of it something good. It all works for the good. You know, God can write straight with crooked letters. It's this kind of quality about the way God comes into the world. And so it seems entirely appropriate to me that Mary should be found with child out of wedlock. It, it's just in keeping with what came before. Now, in the story, Joseph is described as the just man. He's a, he's a good man. He's a, he is a pious Jew, and he knows by law that he uh, can dismiss his wife, and yet he plans to do it quietly. He doesn't want to cause more scandal, more hurt. And there is a way to embody the law with compassion. And so that's his plan. We'll just quietly dismiss Mary. And the angel comes to him in a dream and says, Joseph, don't worry about taking Mary as your wife because the child that she bears is of the Holy Spirit. The child that she bears is of the Holy Spirit. Now that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is the father of Jesus. You know, it says Jesus is of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph does what he's asked to do. He takes Mary as his wife and claims Jesus as his son and names him and claims him. And so in so many ways, he really embodies who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. Because I think at Christmas time, we can actually see ourselves in the birth of Jesus. That each one of us actually comes into the world of the Holy Spirit. And we are named and claimed by God. Remember in your baptism, 
you are marked as Christ's own forever? Just as Joseph claims and names Jesus, so Jesus names and claims us. He's very much his father's son. I mean, because what comes afterwards, right? He calls Peter and James and John, the tax collectors and the fishermen, and they don't understand, and they deny him and run away. And then they call people who call people who call people on down to us who were called by someone and named and claimed. So we are all in the lineage of Jesus. We are all part of this story. And the point is, is that God is always ready, always ready to come into the world. You know, it's, it's, it is the way God is. And it's us who have the hang-ups and the problems and don't feel ready. So let us remember this Christmas time that we are very much beloved of God and that God is ready to come to us just the way we are. That's the point. God with us. Not with us when we're good. With us when we're finally there, when we're finally good enough. God with us now to come into the world to save us from our sins. And friends, this is very, very good news.